You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers. This is a special edition of What's Up in Dramaland with Saya, Anissa and Borma. Hi, I'm Saya. This episode is the second part of our overview of problematic tropes and representations in K-drama. In the first part, we talked about race and identity and why representation matters. Make sure to catch it if you haven't yet. In this part, we turn to issues around bodies, abled and disabled, fat and thin, hot and not, and sexism, and pass out something of a timeline in the evolution of how women and bodies have been treated in K-drama in the last 15 years. In the first part, we discuss body shaming, ableism and the portrayal of illness, and fat phobia, before we move on to the problems of the infantilization and sexualization of women, touching on issues of grooming, harassment and consent. We talk about our conflicted feelings, what responsibility we feel as viewers, and ask ourselves what makes a drama cross the line of watchability. We close with a discussion of the change we want to see, and where we think it has to come from. And I've got to tell you, after weeks of hashing this out, spoiler alert, we're actually pretty hopeful and positive about the future. Thank you so much to each and every listener who responded to our call for what you wanted us to talk about. We couldn't mention all of you by name here, but we've put together a document collating all the feedback that you sent us, which you can find if you click on the link in the description for the extended show notes for this episode. Extended because we like to cite our sources, and also because we had some 4am thoughts to add after recording, and I'm not gonna lie, that was mostly me. This episode was produced with the support of our Patreon patrons. As always, our gratitude is all yours. You can find our page at patreon.com slash dramasoverflowers. Onwards, I recommend tea and cookies and getting comfortable. See you on the other side. Hi, I'm Saya. I'm Anissa. And I'm Porma. And welcome to part two of our super long special, which we had split into two parts, on like an overview on problematic tropes and issues of representation in K-dramas. So this one is going to be about relationships, body image, and ableism and sort of related aspects. One of the common themes in a lot of the feedback that we got from listeners, thank you so much listeners for your amazing emails and tweets and messages. And voice notes. <laughs> yes! Oh, I'm putting my hand on my heart. One of the things that we noticed was a consistent theme was, um, you know, issues of imbalance and power in relationships, issues of consent, sexual assault and harassment, and those types of issues, which we have talked about in detail before. So for example, we did a special on the Me Too movement and on toxic relationships in K-dramas back in episode 16. So we aren't necessarily going to cover those topics again, but we do want to talk about some of those things that we haven't really addressed in detail before. One of those things that we've seen kind of consistently coming up, and I feel like we do kind of talk about this a little bit every time we hear like casting news and stuff, but it's the infantilization of female leads in comparison to male leads and often the sexualization of women who either are very young or like are visually represented using the tropes of very young women, like school uniforms and that kind of thing. So let's dive into this spiky topic. <laughs> what do y'all think about this? Or, or like, what are some examples of this? The obvious one that's very timely right now is Backstreet Rookie. You're right. And to explain to our listeners who aren't watching Backstreet Rookie, but may have heard uh, something about the brouhaha going around, there is a massive age difference between the actor's cast uh, in these roles. The actress, I think, is in her early 20s, whereas the actor is in his 30s. And 
this has happened repeatedly and it wouldn't have caused such a huge issue if the beginning scene and the scene that was used for promotions weren't of the actress basically depicting a school-aged girl kissing a full adult man. And that that initially was what spawned a lot of the protests. And then, of course, there were, there were other aspects as well. We're not really going to go into that. But this age difference has been normal for so long that it's barely worth commentary in, in most situations. The reason we bring it up is because you often have very young actresses cast in these roles. If, if you guys remember Radio Romance from, I think, a couple of years back, one of the most offensive things about it was that uh, they had taken the actress, an actress was already really young. I think she was, what, 19 or 20? I didn't watch the drama, but from what I can remember, like, the actor was in his early 30s, I think. And sort of the framing, even the styling that they had her in, in that role actually made her look younger rather than older. And so it was really troubling, not only because of how young she was, but because of the way that the camera was looking at her, if that makes sense. I know, Saya, you actually yes. watched this show, so maybe I should defer to you on this. That's what I remember. She was 19, he was 29, so there was a 10-year age gap. She had also previously been in that drama, The Ghost One, with Ted. Bring it on, Ghost. Yeah, yeah, that one. And again, same kind of age difference. I think it's uh, important to note that when we talk about age differences, we're not saying this doesn't happen in real life or that it's not acceptable in real life. What we're saying is that when you make an executive decision to put a depiction like this on the screen, particularly of actresses that we have known as children, at the moment that they turn legal, there's something Mm. quite distasteful about that. I mean, what that put me in mind of a lot was... Emma Watson, you know, you've seen this person from childhood and you know, and I'm not making this up, this isn't like something that I'm imagining happened. We have a lot of like, just go on the internet archives, it's all there, that people had been waiting for her to turn 18, for it to be legal to sexualize her. And but they had, but just the, the anticipation of it itself was quite oh. yuck. And this is this. I feel like this is what we're watching with um, Kim Yo Jung and Kim Soo Hyun. And um, people talk about Kim Seon as well, but you know the three Kims and all of that. Mm. But she actually hasn't been taking roles like this. She's been taking quite different roles, and also other young actresses. For example, Lee Sun Bin, who was I think like what twenty two or three when she was paired with someone much older. But again, we hadn't seen her from childhood, so it didn't... Like, we were able to see her as an adult, and, like, I'm not quite sure whether I'm commenting that it was okay because we hadn't seen her as a child. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the way that we approach these faces and these women is different because of the different relationship we've had with them for a long time. And also, another drama that I thought of was uh, Prime Minister and I, which actually had uh, Yuna... With a much bigger age difference, I think it was like twenty year age difference mm. between the two, and it was it was an extreme age difference. And I can't remember how much uh, talk about it there was at the time, but the drama itself treated it. It had um, there were a couple of hairy moments, uh, and this uh, I feel like comes up actually in all of these dramas. The one uh, with Kim Seon and with Kim Yo Jung, 
is that the the drunken scenes and I really really hate those because for a start they're really young secondly when they're like drunk out of their minds putting them into that situation of vulnerability is itself I feel uh, an expression of I don't know if voyeurism is the word but there's something deliberate in putting them into a position like that which isn't necessary it doesn't add to the story but with um, Prime Minister and I and Yuna really significant age difference and she had that drunk scene quite early on but afterwards and as the drama progressed it went to great pains to keep that relationship it was a romantic relationship but it wasn't sexual or sexualized it could be implied as a future thing but in that moment it wasn't and a lot of people had a big beef with how that drama ended which was with a handshake (laughs) actually I was okay with that that was the kind of drama it was it was a family drama it wasn't about the complications of an age difference actually age difference was not even a question in that relationship so yeah I mean it might not be how you traditionally expect a drama a romantic drama to finish but I, I feel like that's what they kind of had to do because of the actors yeah I think it was like not the level of skinship, but, like, I did watch that drama, and I was like, what, a handshake? It wasn't enough. <laughs> no, it was not that it wasn't enough, but, like, there's a big difference between shaking somebody's hand and holding their hand, if you know what yeah. I mean. So I feel like hand-holding would have been a more appropriate reaction to seeing the person that you, like, married and were in love with and had a long separation with than, like, let's <laughs> shake hands. <laughs> nice to meet you again. But if if the choice is between that kind of ending and what we have been seeing in, like, Backstreet Rookie and whatever, I would choose that. Yeah. Fair Less enough. <laughs> <laughs> because we're talking about, like, um, not that great representation of, uh, you know, huge age gaps where the girl is like you're waiting for the girl to grow up you know one of the most egregious um, depictions of this is again in one of my most favorite dramas reply 1997 right? no oh no <laughs> <laughs> i love how you're just like goblin so you just were like waiting <laughs> we'll we'll talk about goblin but again not not my favorite drama but one of like high high up there with the fantasy thing anyway so reply 1997 did this thing which was which was really ugged me out when it was happening. It's a character that I never really liked in the drama. I found him almost oh. predatory. And I just couldn't get over that idea no matter how many times I've watched this drama. I just... Okay, so this guy is basically Seo and Gok's older brother. I think there is a good 10 years difference. So he, he would be in his mid to late 20s um, at the time of the drama. While she is in high school. She is at the most by Korean calendar, she's maybe 18. Uh, we're talking about Shiwon, the uh, female lead, mm-hmm. uh, which is played by Yunji. And he used to date her dead older sister. And she grows up and becomes, quote unquote, a woman when she is in her final year, just graduating out of school. And he develops a crush. He, who is her teacher, develops a crush on her. And Yunji kind of goes along with it and starts dating him for a couple of years. And I cannot tell you how many kinds of squeaked out I was by that entire storyline. And I found, I didn't know, I didn't have the language to realize what it was. But much later, I realized that I found Tewung's character predatory. Yes, he was a great young to Seo and Gok and all of that stuff. But he was 
an actual like second lead in this drama which made no sense to me whatsoever for yoonji's affection ha- he was almost an uncle to her growing up like it just i was i what and here's the thing he saw her grow up he didn't grow up with her he was already an adult when she was a kid and he saw her grow, i it's not like it doesn't happen but i i can't you know we uh, oof, we know what uh, grooming is right <laughs> Yes. when predatory men groom younger women or even younger boys to kind of like prepare them for a time when they are legal adults so they can get sexually involved with them this felt like grooming to me and i i know a lot of people love reply 1997 they would hate me saying this but after much thought despite my desperately loving this drama this is how i see this character he was a creep I think what's also really problematic about this character which I agree I also hate this character. I think what makes it even more messed up and this relates back to Saya's point in our last what's up in drama land where she was talking about how like all of these are deliberate choices made by the production team so it's not necessarily a mistake. It's not necessarily yeah, it's not necessarily a question of like what would this happen in real life? Yes, often it would, but you made a decision to put that in. And I think with this one the decision from the creators of the drama to not only have that storyline but then to be to have this like who's the husband who did she end up with who's the one and so like instead of ending that and keeping that yucky storyline confined to like that whatever episodes she was involved with him it extends that over the entire drama until the very end in this really distasteful way in which the drama itself is legitimizing him as a second lead as you mentioned yeah and i i really find that upsetting it would have been different if he was dating an adult like in her mid 20s uh she won if that was the time when they got into a relation that would be a totally different thing she has been an adult for many years it's not like the moment she reached adulthood he's dating her that's what creeped me out i have one thought that i just and i'm not like necessarily i'm not arguing for this <laughs> okay. it's just in in terms of context and also like you know for example we read Jane Austen and people have the same issue with Mr Knightley and Emma and um but also we all come from cultures where either our parents or our grandparents depending on 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 that have this was a norm in their cultures and times um and this idea that adulthood is actually constructed by society and all of those things i think are valid and i think sometimes for example many years ago i would not have had as much a problem with an age difference like this i mean i grew up reading the books from like 100 and 200 years ago yeah. so me too yeah and, and, <laughs> right we all of us <laughs> yeah and and also there is that culture element with for example you know i just learned uh, not too long ago as very very recently that my grandmother when she got married um she was young Um and that's that was a norm in that time and it wasn't necessarily dysfunctional or toxic or any of those things it was a cultural norm of the time but I don't think that applies now because uh, our societies have changed so much that something like in our time a man as you say grooming a young teen or an older teen or whatever is is it is it's mm-hmm. it's just wrong there's I don't think there's any need to sort of pussyfoot around that it is wrong and it is yeah. like 
squicky, not just squicky, but bordering on possibly criminal. And uh, at other times, you're just like, this is not socially okay and morally blah. It's not only just the biological age and the sort of psychological development of the person. That is an aspect. There's also the aspect that, A, like this person, you know, when somebody is or used to be in a position of authority over another person, that adds an imbalance to the relationship. When somebody has the legal status of an adult and another person either doesn't have the legal status of an adult or they just gained the legal status of an adult, that also changes the dynamic a little bit. So like there are societal structures that didn't exist like 200 years ago or 100 years ago that really change what it means to be in that kind of a relationship for the people involved and especially for the more vulnerable party. I also want to add the reason I'm okay with Emma and Mr. Knightley was because, again, he was never any kind of authority figure to her, not even like a avuncular figure, nothing. It's He's always treated her like she's this just distant niece type of person. But then for years, they've treated each other as friends. The transition happened gradually, but they were on equal footing. Emma was not dependent on him. Emma was not in any way, you know, aside from in some good ways, influenced by him. Whereas with Shiwon's character with Taewong, he was her teacher. He was her best friend's sort of like father figure slash like he used to play cards with her parents. He mm. is as much uh-huh. a parent figure as an uncle would be. And then suddenly he's propositioning her in that like, you know, let's date. And she won like through. And the thing is the way they depicted she wants reaction to the entire thing. She's kind of half flattered into sort of dating him, but she never actually has feelings. It's almost like she can't say no, she's flattered and she starts dating when she doesn't even know what feelings are. And by the time she realizes it, it's like, you know, that that is problematic. He's an authority figure. He's he's not just an authority figure, he's a parent figure. And he yeah, that that's what I find problematic. And that's really crucial what you say about how she's in a position where she can't say no. I think part of mm-hmm. the reason why people support Backstreet Rookie and Kim Yoo Jung's character in that is because she's very forthright and proactive and if anything she is assaulting him. Which, you know, there's an argument for that. But I guess my argument is this should never have existed in the first place. It was unnecessary, and why did you need to do that? Okay, mm-hmm. a point here. So, two things. The first aspect is the uh, not that great aspect, the, the aspect that I completely agree with you on, which is she's a schoolgirl, and you have her kissing this adult man. This, for me, is a very... An older cis man's wish fulfillment on screen type of thing. So you're basically just putting up. It's like you know, the actors are literally playing out somebody's fantasy. Somebody's fantasy, yeah. So that is disgusting, and that's not kind their of own. Like, not their own, and so yeah. I don't, I don't know too many schoolgirls who kind of like sit around wishing, hey, I wish I could kiss a the handsome, much older man. Uh, just randomly on the street one day. To be honest, I mean, not on the street, but like you know, I <laughs> I went to an all girls school. They they were. Yeah. They were interested they were, yeah, in, interesting. in men for yeah. a long time. No, but what I mean is that this is not something that you sit around doing. For it is wish. real. But whereas, you know, start from Sailor Moon costumes mm. to, we know this stuff. The, the, you know, the, the sexual fantasy of the, of the schoolgirl coming onto, it's very Lolita is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's very Humbert Humbert. It's like she came on to me, that young seducer. It's uh, anyway. Anissa so made me take that expression. No, actually, that's not true. I was planning <laughs> to take it out anyway. That was in I, I um in my essay where I wrote about this. Um, I briefly referred to it as Lolita casting, but yeah. um, it I mean it kind of 
is, even if they're technically adults, because that's what they're going for. However, mm-hmm. I am not actually that disturbed by the age difference in the casting. If they didn't have that schoolgirl kissing the adult man aspect, I would have nothing to say about this. This is a girl in her early 20s working in a convenience store in a job she doesn't need. She's He's not in a position of power over her because she can just leave and go. She's here to pursue him. So at no point can he control her through her position so i don't find the position of authority uh, uh, an issue here like there is no power dynamic here where he can coerce her into a relationship and the age difference doesn't seem to matter much because she's not treating him with some great amount of deference because of the age difference either if anything he's taking her less seriously because of her age as much as i have watched i think i've watched four episodes of this drama and throughout it he's just treating her like a kid so I don't have an issue with that aspect of it. If the drama had just started when Sadhguru joined the convenience store, I don't think I would have had an issue. It's the schoolgirl thing that they added on which made it so problematic for me. Mm. Yeah. Or even if they met at that time, but she didn't plant one on him. Yeah. Mm. Like, that's what it is, right? It's this completely unnecessary enactment of something mm. really gross that is purely there to, like, titillate. Some it, it was people. unnecessary. She could have seen him, asked him to buy cigarettes, just like she she does. She could have just turned around, looked at him, and said, "Nobody's ever told me to stop smoking before," and just smiled at him super adorably, and that's it. You could have just ended it there. What is with this? Why? Why add that kiss? Why do it? Yeah. Why? But it was like it was from even before that because, like, literally from the first frame, they have framed it as a romantic encounter. And okay, you can have that meeting even while she's in school uniform, but the entire thing was framed mm. like this uh, fateful romantic encounter with the slow mo, with the you know the was it like the wind swept hair and all of that stuff. It was, it was overkill. Like it went so over on that. Even a drama that didn't have those issues in its casting wouldn't have gone so overboard with that. Like we have like a billion examples of dramas where they don't do it that much. Sarah, I don't, I don't know if you, you, if you remember this, but um, I know you really enjoyed Doctors. Yeah. But do you remember <laughs> how they met? Oh uh, no, I don't actually. They, they, they meet when she is this school kid. And um, he's, I think he's he's coming, getting back to medicine or something. He's studying medicine. I think he's taking a break from medicine. He's already a doctor and she's in school. And he comes to live with her and her grandmom. And he's the one who interests her in medicine. That's how she becomes a doctor. But she's in school when she develops a crush on him. And the thing is that that's fine. Having a crush on this guy, this adult man, and he thinks it's problematic too. That's the way they end that period of their meeting and then they meet years later is him reciprocating that feeling. She's a schoolgirl. The entire time he's he's acting as her tutor, as her teacher. And then they end that phase of her life. Like she leaves before he can confess, but he run he runs after her to confess, but she happens to leave and he can't find her. That's why like 10 years go by and then he meets her again on that, you know, helipad. And then perfectly normal romance go forward. I have no issues with that aspect. But he's already (laughs) in his late 20s, the first time when they meet and she's a school kid. And and, um, Park Shin Hye's character is shown as this badass, you know, rebel type of girl who's like beating up other girls and being flirted with by Jisoo, you know, 
very like <laughs> Jisoo is very cute. <laughs> He's also very beat to second lead. We'll never get the oh girl. Oh my god! So. <laughs> I have like I actually am very conflicted on this topic in general because like in in real life I'm not I th- I think you can have a big age difference in a relationship and as long as you have as long as it works for people personally I'm like you do you that's your choice to have your relationship how you want to have it. But when it comes to constructed relationships, i.e. on screen ones, again, mm. I, I, I I am conflicted because on the one hand, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, you know, it could be. And on, on the other, you're like, but society and yeah. stuff. Agreed. I'm being super judgmental, (laughs) but if if this was like happening in real life or like even in a fictional sort of like thought experiment. For example, I knew a girl at school who had uh, not something, they didn't have anything during school and it was was our teacher. But after school, after we had all left school, we were 18, like 17, 18 at that time. She was 18. But after she had officially left school, they got together. And they were together for nine years. So okay. it's not like it was casual. It was a real relationship. It may have started... I mean, you can't necessarily help where or how you meet someone who is the person who is right for you. And yeah. if you give that relationship a real honest shot and it is a relationship as opposed to an exploitative, grooming kind of relationship, because like both of those things are possibilities like you can have a good relationship that's healthy and fulfilling and lifelong or not or just however long it is or you can have that bad one where it goes wrong okay excellent point i can't i can't disagree with that it's true you can meet uh, your you know the person you end up with uh, uh, when they are in school and you can't help it so long as you start the relationship after they have graduated and you're no longer <laughs> her teacher <laughs> Excellent points. I agree with everything. I think one of the things that comes up for me a lot in these types of conversations around whether a drama has a problematic relationship dynamic. I know we overuse that word, but I just sometimes there's like no other word to use. I know it's been used so much that it's like lost its meaning. meaning. But I just, (laughs) I know, I know. But sometimes that's the only word. And I think one of the nuances that I feel often gets lost in these kinds of And a lot of it is because we're doing these like online and we're like hashing a lot of this out in like comments or on Twitter or whatever is I think one of the really important things to sort of consider is the framing in a drama. So like it's not only that a certain thing happens and that it's portrayed, although sometimes even the portrayal in itself can be crossing a line. But sometimes it's about, for example, the gaze of the camera and the camera angles and the way that the story and the narrative sets that action up. And what kind of consequences happen later on? And who is taking that action? And who is approving of that action? And who is arguing against it? Like within the world of the drama and kind of what the drama is arguing about that action. So you can have the same type of relationship portrayed in two different dramas where one is saying something very different about the nature of that relationship. And I don't want to say the moral value of that relationship, but just sort of like how that kind of relationship would affect the people involved and what kind of consequences it would have for them. And so I think it's not only about like, would this happen in real life or not? It's also about like, even though we don't necessarily like our dramas with messages with a capital M or morals, but like every drama is saying something, right? Like every drama has a perspective. It has a worldview. And so it makes me think of it's okay to not be okay because in some senses you could see the heroine's actions as 
very, very messed up. Uh, like the some of the liberties that she takes and some of her behaviors toward the male lead could be taken as harassment. But then on the other hand, the drama is telling you from scene one that she is a very troubled person with a lot of trauma. Her actions are not the standard. Part of the appeal of her character is that she doesn't fit in with society at all. You know, like, so you can't just, like, make these broad blanket statements about an action by itself in a box. You know, like, you have to look at the entire context of the drama. And I think sometimes when we have these discussions, people tend to make these black and white statements like, A, behavior is always messed up, and that means that the drama is canceled. And then I think, like, that type of argument then it ends up with other people going on the other extreme being like, everything is okay, you guys are too judgmental. And then it just becomes, like, I don't know. Two polar camps, yeah. I know. Exactly. Instead of a really interesting discussion. So I think that's actually best exemplified in Kim Yoo-jung and her uh, drama choices. And again, like whether they are really her choices or her agents or whatever, that's something that we don't know. But um, for example, Moonlight Drawn by Clouds, yeah. which was quite a while ago and she was quite a bit younger then, which she did with Puck Bogum. And you quite again, when you're that young, any age difference is quite significant. And yet it didn't feel predatory in the way that... Clean with passion. The, the camera didn't feel predatory in the way that Backstreet Rookie does. Clean with passion actually also, I would say, didn't. Uh, the reason I dropped that drama wasn't because of... It was just boring. Yeah, I mean, it. I just, I had enough of, her, yeah, the different subject. But the, uh, as you say, the camera's gaze makes all the difference. Like, how are they telling you to see this character? Whereas in Backstreet Rookie, it is a very... There's a there's a clear uh, intent in the way that they're framing her. And, and that's what I find really kind of... That's what grosses me out in mm-hmm. the sense that you want me to look at her in a sexually objectifying way, which I don't feel comfortable doing. I can't watch this. But at the same time, I also have to say they have quite good chemistry. And as if, you had taken, if you had taken out that beginning portion, uh, you could still have had a perfectly good drama. But And again, there's also, there's always the argument, discussion, I'm not sure, the aspect of child actors and actresses of deliberately doing edgy things to break away from their childhood actor image. So maybe there's an element of that at play as well. Again, I don't know. And finally, we'll come to Goblin because, you know, how can we not? (laughs) Yeah, and we would definitely get emails if we didn't talk about Goblin. (laughs) (laughs) Although we love emails, so maybe we should talk about Goblin. And we also love Goblin, so... (laughs) We also love Goblin, yeah. Yeah. Very recently, I tried to get a friend to watch Goblin and um, she usually trusts my uh, judgment, I think. And she was sorely disappointed by it. She was like, what did you send me off to watch? And one of the things that uh, she said about Goblin is a complaint that we, Anissa and I, have shared about the king as well, which is the overpowered hero. And the overpowered hero placed by side of this very young female lead, or her character is very young because I think... um, it what's the name? Go no Park Kim. What's her name? Kim Kim. Is it Kim Goyun? Kim Goyun. Yeah. Well, always I start with Park. I don't know why. Sorry. I know it's because I mix her up with Park Sodam. Park Sodam. That's the one I confuse yeah. her with, right? 
So an overpowered hero um, paired up with a very young um, heroine, even though she's played with, I think, uh, uh, 20-something, I think she was in her mid-20s, Kim Go-yoon, when she was playing this. So she's not like in her teens. Uh, However, she's, oh, by the way, this is something I did not realize until a a comment of very recently, um, uh, sorry, until a listener very recently uh, sent us this message and uh, critiquing Goblin. I didn't realize that, Kim Goyun was doing a voice that that squeaky girlish. I I honestly didn't realize it. And then I was recently watching Goblin, and I was watching some BTS, and she goes from that high pitched. I can't do anime schoolgirl. Anime schoolgirl voice, and then the ski scene cuts, and they're talking normally, and she's talking in her normal adult voice, and I'm like. Man, how did I not realize that was a voice she was doing? And then it just sounded so weird afterwards when I was watching the rest of the episode because now I know that she was doing a voice. That was like... So are you saying that it's not just when she does those like agio moments? Throughout. No. Oh, really? Oh my God. That 18-year-old, and I I think they were trying to pitch her as a 19-year-old, though how like in her final year of school, she'd be 17 or 18 max. Yeah, because her voice changes when she gets older and he meets her later on, which has short hair. Oh my God. Yeah. And and the thing is that deliberate infantilization of a high school girl, like a high school girl, yes, she would have a slightly higher pitched voice. But to that extent, they turned her character into this very, like as adorable as you can possibly find. It's an old thing that we have seen in storytelling since forever, where you have this grizzled character paired with this embodiment of purity. And that's what Kim Goyun's character was there. The young king, do you remember the moment when the goblin realizes that he's fallen in love with her? She's crossing the street in Canada and he's sitting in this park and he's looking mm-hmm. at her and he's reading this poetry. <laughs> right. And he's just, and she's just jumping on the zebra crossing. I don't know what she call those. And he's just looking at her and he's like, yeah, fall in love with her. And I'm like, wait, for, for, for you've just known her for a couple of days and she's just being all cutesy and that, that's why you fall in love with her? And now I didn't find that weird at all in the first watching. And honestly, I love Goblin. My love for it has not gone down remotely. <laughs> but now I can see this and I'm like, wait, that that does not make... And... <sighs> Sorry, I'm getting really worked up. <laughs> While you huff and puff in anger. <laughs> I think my issue, or maybe why I feel a bit complex about Goblin, is that on one hand, it's like this total fantasy where there's like a 900-year-old Goblin and a regular human girl and then they have this you know the connection that she's you know got this like she's the only one that can see his sword and she's like destined to take the sword out and like there's a lot of external forces that are kind of forcing them together and it's so funny and it takes so long for them to actually get together and there's a lot of you know sadness and tragedy and heartbreak and all that like so I was okay with it while I was watching it because it was so fantastical and removed from reality But then, like, also, at the same time, I'm not okay with all of these deliberate choices that the drama has made to frame it in a very unnecessarily infantilizing way. And even if they had done everything that they did all the way up to the ending, spoilers for the ending, why put her back into a schoolgirl's body again? Like... Like, he could have met her three years later. She would have been a legal adult and have lived a, a, a life of an adult for a couple of years. Right? Why? 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 Like, he already waited so long. Like, why can't he wait a little longer? Why? Because the, they decided to do that. They wanted that visual. And, like, that 
is upsetting. Mm. So I feel kind of of two minds. But I, I mean, I did really enjoy the show. I feel like part of being a fan of anything is is that, especially when you have material like this, is that you somehow have to square your conflicting feelings about things. And I love Goblin. My love for it isn't lessened by this. But I can also recognize that I don't like certain choices that the show made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. Because every format that we're presented with, every text that we're presented with, is not going to 100% agree with whatever our values are or what we're comfortable with seeing or, you know, what we are or are not triggered by. There's that. There's always like a personal level when it comes to how you interpret a text. And like I have friends who just cannot watch Goblin because of how it opens like they're not willing to give it the ch- which is fine they're not willing to give it uh time to do better mm. and yeah, frankly it's not doing better it's just the story's moving on which is mm-hmm. the same with Backstreet Rookie although my issue with Backstreet Rookie is not that like the reason that I couldn't continue watching it was not because of that it was because of the racism but in general I, th- I yeah in general I think it you know people do have different lines there are some lines that I think should be universal, um, but again, I can't control other people's emotions and feelings and things. But I, we do, like, we do have societal standards. We have things that are categorically never okay. Uh, and again, with K drama being uh, a product of, uh, of 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 Korea, but then reaching a global audience adds um, different layers of discussion to that to that conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is something that I want to bring up. Uh, Saya, you had pointed this out when we were making the notes. We are criticizing the younger woman, older man trope. Repeatedly happens and justifiably criticized. Why are we okay with much younger men paired with much older women? And I'm not talking about adult men. Think of I hear your voice. Think of uh, the Gong Yu drama uh, where he was like a school boy and uh, fell for the substitute teacher. Mm. Biscuit teacher, teacher and star candy. Biscuit teacher. <laughs> teacher and star candy. <laughs> <laughs> right, that one. And there's another one that I'm... Oh, the uh, Siu and Gok one. Savvy. Uh, high school... High school king, of, king savvy. of savvy. Right. Which, again, for me was really disturbing because he was such a young kid, even though the relationship was actually really nicely uh, developed. And in all of these dramas, I think the relationships were nicely developed. There was enough, uh, you know, space given for the relationship to grow sort of like outside, like after the boy graduates from school. (laughs) But I just, they're school kids. These are fully adult women. Why am I okay with this? Because I was, while I was watching all of I think high school, uh, King of Savi was the only one where I, I, it didn't feel okay to me. But why was I okay with, I hear your voice. Why was I okay with Biscuit Teacher? Especially Biscuit Teacher, because she is in a position of authority. Where, though you can say, you know, as him being the chebol spoiled ass, her authority over him was limited, <laughs> to say the least. It was completely ineffectual, <laughs> yeah. to be fair. Flower Boy Ramyun Shop, if you want to add something ah. in opposition to Biscuit uh-huh. Teacher, Star Candy. Right. I right. absolutely was not okay with that. I think a lot of it comes down to power dynamics. So whether the age differences and all of these things are sort of proxies for just talking about power. Yeah. And also, like, the meta framing as well, which is that 
sometimes we say we have a problem with something with a particular aspect for example an age difference or you know a, a schoolgirl dynamic schoolgirl adult dynamic and all of that and they they are we do have a problem with them but i think what a lot of the time we mean when we say we have a problem with it is that we're saying we have a problem with the industry that wants to keep showing us these uh, visuals and these images we're not necessarily criticizing the validity of i mean okay half the time we are but sometimes it's not about the validity or possible reality or unreality of the actual situation it's about an executive uh you know executive decisions that uh that just want to put put a certain image in front of people i said the same thing twice in different words <laughs> sorry no, but I understand what you're saying, because this is something that you also mentioned, like that you put in the notes, Saya, about sort of how our knowledge of what happens behind the scenes affects what's happening in front of the scenes, right? So like, yes, we see many, many relationships where there's a much older man and a much younger woman. And then we also see quite a few, I mean, in K-dramas, we have a lot of Nuna romances. And in general, people accept those pretty uncritically and I think it is true that part of the reason is because we're mostly women as a fandom, but I also think that the knowledge of the societal structures of misogyny and the particular context of, you know, the casting couch that you brought up and that we have talked about in the past and the sort of the culture of exploitation of very young women by entertainment industries in general definitely flavors how we feel about seeing both of these kinds of stories on screen. And how we can't be 100% sure that this is 100% their choice and that they're not somehow being coerced or um, in a situation where they can't say no without consequences. And also the, for the dramas that I mentioned where you have like these cool-aged boys being paired with adult women, in all of them, the power dynamic is not in favor of the women. Um, it's kind mm-hmm. of in favor of the boy. Think of, I hear your voice. The boy can literally hear her thoughts. You mm-hmm. don't have more power than that. Um, and, and therefore, their relationship develops and becomes like of equals really quickly because he has that huge uh, advantage over her. Um, and then I honestly don't remember enough of uh, Biscuit Teacher, but I do remember clearly that at no point did it ever feel as if Gong Yu's character was under her authority in any way whatsoever. It always felt like the two of them had more like a, once they became friends, it was more camaraderie and it was her experience that helped even him out. And he was willing to be a more responsible adult more quickly because of her influence. And also with High School King of Savvy, for majority of the drama, because this high schooler was pretending to be a much older boy, the girl had no idea how old he was. And also he was in a position of authority over her. It was later on when she finds out what his real age is, she's supremely conflicted. That that is actually dealt with in the drama. And I also like that when they kind of jumped forward a bit, they showed how frustrated she was with his lack of progress in getting a job. I I actually thought they did a pretty decent job um, in high school, King of Savvy, in developing that relationship. So... Yeah, the power dynamic really matters, especially when there's a huge gap in difference and one partner is very young and inexperienced in life. Absolutely. And now, I think this is a good segue into our next topic, which um, I don't know why I'm introducing it so cheerfully because it's (laughs) not cheerful at all. (laughs) 
So, yeah. So, I mean, this has definitely come up in some ways before. Um, we talked about it when we did our Spoiled Yak on perfume and search www. But we really wanted to give, um, like, fat shaming and body shaming and kind of, like, body standards in general and how bodies and particularly women's bodies are represented in K-dramas. Mm. We wanted to give that, like, a decent and considered discussion. So, I think... One of the things that we've all know, probably noticed during the time that we've watched, been watching Korean dramas is that there is, and I think this is common in a lot of Asian cultures, there is less hesitation to comment on someone's appearance than I have experienced in, oh my like, God. growing up in Western culture. There, <laughs> less hesitation is putting it very nicely. <laughs> I think I'm, I, if I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic. It, Gained weight, my the for some reason my neighborhood uncle, aunties, the shop owner that I go and get stuff from, everybody feels free to comment. Hey, you have lost weight. Hey, you're you're looking chubbier. You've gained weight. Why do you need to comment? Why is there a running commentary on my weight? How do you have so much time to even notice whether I've gained weight or lost weight? Moving <laughs> ah. on. No, it's okay. As somebody who grew up in an Asian culture, you can be much more emphatic than I can. I don't want to like, <laughs> I'm sitting in a very different position. So, um, but yes, very well said. Um, so I think that like, especially if you come from a culture that where they don't do that, or like if one of the cultures that you are very familiar with doesn't do that, it can be a little jarring. And I think as all of us who are, have been either like lived in multiple places or been exposed to multiple cultures, I think we understand that no culture is superior to another, but when you've experienced more than one, then certain things kind of become apparent to you in a way that you wouldn't notice them if like all you knew was your own culture, you probably wouldn't notice those things about your culture. But putting two cultures next to each other, you can say, oh, like, well, this culture has particular things that are really great. And then this other culture has things that are really different, but also really great, but then they might not be as good in other other areas, you know? So like, it gives you this comparative lens where things aren't just the default and the and the neutral, quote unquote. So I just wanted to go into this discussion with that sort of baseline context so that we kind of keep that in mind, I guess. Um, and so maybe we can go into particular examples now. Just to sort of lead on from your point, it's one of those things that's so embedded in um, Asian culture. And when I say Asian culture, I am also very specifically referring to my own that at some point for your own sanity or whatever, you just sort of tune it out so you kind of don't hear it. And that's what I do in dramas. If I see that, I may register it, but I also will be like, I'm just going to not hear that part because <laughs> that's how you stay sane. But nevertheless, there has been quite uh, there have been quite a few dramas that have specifically tried to look at body image from different perspectives um, sometimes weight, sometimes like um, beauty. I think the earliest that I can think of, and I'm sure there's older, this is just like um, within my watching experience, it would be uh, Kim Sam, uh, my name is Kim Samsun from 2005, four, five? I think either four or five, if I'm mm. remembering correctly. So, yeah, and that's kind of, that was a little after the Bridget Jones uh, taking over the world thing as well. So, mm. and there was a bit of a relationship uh, between those as well. 
So I, f- I feel like in, in Korean dramas, perhaps that one might be the the sort of the OG trendsetter. And like similar to Renee Zellweger putting on weight for the role, you had Kim Sonna putting on weight for the role. Though, of course, Kim Sonna's version of fat is many people's version of skinny. <laughs> but I yeah. think they did, they did treat the, the subject um, like sensitively and well. And she was such such a sort of kick-ass character and very satisfying to watch. What, what do you guys remember from that? It's been a while. I, I remember her being really self-pitying. So I didn't get the same enjoyment out of that drama that uh, you did, Saya. And I remember discussing it with you a few years back. Because, as you said, she was not fat at all. And I understood but that it was not about... society saw her as Exactly. Fat. It was so, not about yeah. how, how much weight she was carrying. It was about how much how much criticism society was like pouring onto her and therefore making her feel like she was fat. I, I understood that. It was a journey of her accepting herself. But also she just self-flagellated so much. It was hard for me to watch that drama. That's what I mostly remember from it. Do you think because of the time that that might have been the only acceptable way for that character to exist? I don't know if that's a good question. It's possible. We're planning to sort of talk about this a little bit later on anyway, so I might as well bring it up now, which is the connection between um, morality and physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And perhaps with Kim Simpson, maybe she could only exist if she hated her fatness, her quote-unquote fatness. Mm-hmm. But to be a self-loving fat person would maybe take a bit more time on from 2005 or whenever it was. Yeah, that's a valid point. Like, it's hard for us to know, having not existed in Korean society in 2005, but, like, from what I can see in media, and as I've... I mean, I kind of started watching Korean dramas in 2009, and I got into variety shows around the same time, and I did go back and watch Kim Samsoon and some older dramas... I don't know that there was ever a heroine whose journey was quite like Kim Samsoon's before Kim Samsoon. Like, even though she does take a lot of abuse and, like, the male lead treats her pretty crappily. Oh, my God. I really dislike Kevin's character in that. So did I. He was yeah. an ass. <laughs> Yeah. But she herself, like, I think she herself was a revolutionary character at the time. Like, the fact that she never loses weight. Like, throughout the drama, she stays the same size. You know, like, in the beginning, she wants to change her name. She wants to be, like, this new self. She wants to leave herself behind. But it ends up really being a journey about her accepting herself and loving herself. And, like, maybe it does take a little too long to get there. And maybe she puts up with things that she probably shouldn't put up with. But I also think that a lot of that is has to do with the sort of ingrained norms, not only for women, but, and I think this is pretty universal, actually, it's not specific only to Korea, but like the way that people and society expects people who have not skinny bodies in the eyes of society to behave and not value themselves as much and to be okay with society not valuing them as much as skinny people. Yeah. That is like, it's ingrained, right? So it would be not very good writing if that wasn't a part of her character too. If that makes sense. It does. So the good news is that 10 years later, we got Oh My Venus, which is a very different show. So Oh My Venus uh, stars Shin Mina and Soji Sob 
And, you know, we all know what Shinmina looks like. She is, like, a gorgeous toothpick. And for her to play this character, she was put into a fat suit. And that's a point of discussion because, you know, there's there's that whole question of, can you not just cast a fat person to play a fat character? And I guess what the accepted, not wisdom, but unwisdom of this is that, no, who would want to watch a fat person on TV, right? You would watch Shinmina in a fat suit, but you wouldn't watch an actual fat person. You don't want them to be... You don't want to make it morally and socially okay for a fat person to be fat. But at the same time, and that's that's a criticism, that's not me saying that's good. <laughs> At the same time, the show actually did some really interesting things. So firstly, Shinrina got diagnosed with uh, hypothyroidism. And I liked that we finally had a discussion about the connection between uh, the connection between health and weight, because that's something that um, often fatness is presented as a result of overindulgence of excess it's it's immoral right fatness mm-hmm. is immoral so to actually be able to begin a conversation where you're saying actually weight is complex and health is complex and body shapes reflect more complicated things than simply your willpower exactly yeah. or your failure to control your animal self right yeah. yeah and the way that as a result of that like even eating in public becomes something that's policed by other people even strangers mm, right and because like and that's a, uh, something that you hear a lot is that you know people don't want to see fat people eating because there's something uh disgusting and gross about it and that's that's a really difficult mindset to contend with so Oh My Venus is one of those dramas where, okay, so you put the girl into the fat suit, but the, then they took her out of it, of course. She had to have her glamorous reveal. But what it really did that made me happy was that they put her back in the suit in the end. They were like, you know what? She tried. It worked for a while, but now she's just, she is the shape she is. Yeah. And that's that's how bodies are. People are just living their lives in their bodies. They are not their bodies. Yeah. But their bodies go through things that may not look how you want it to look, but that's also just not your business. I think this also relates to another point that I want to bring up here that is not specifically related to weight, but is about what type of actress gets cast as a heroine. So, for example, there's some really charismatic, amazingly talented actresses that only get cast as best friends or as like supporting characters or as or the comic relief. Yeah, or as the fat versions of the heroines because they don't fit the body type and even like the facial look of what a heroine is quote unquote supposed to look like. So, for example, you have um, Kim Silgi, Park Jin Jin, yeah. who are amazing, but will never amazing. be heroines because and like oh yeah yeah and they have I mean they're the complete package and like if you want to be judging based on beauty standards, they're also beautiful. They just don't fit, you know that particular look that people associate with the heroine. But I also do want to bring up, I mean, we talked about this when we had Anya on in the spoiled yak for perfume, where I personally was very turned off by episode one, or maybe like episode one and two, where it felt to me like the show was not only 
using Haji Suk as like the fat version of the heroine because she has this magical body switching that takes her back to her younger age of like 22 and it's a different actress that's playing her. Mm. And that turned me off, but it was also like the camera angles that seemed almost like disgusted with her shape. Um, and I was like, oh, this is awful. Um, but then Anya was saying that part of what the journey of the drama was, was you realize that, that those camera angles were actually her own view of herself. And that as the drama progressed and she began to love herself, those camera angles changed. And like, this is a spoiler, but what she said is at the end, you are not left with the skinny version of her at 22. You're actually left with her as an adult woman being her same shape, looking great in her own body as Hajisuk. Yeah, and she gets the man. <laughs> and she gets the man, yeah. Uh, I love that so much. Yeah. I know, I want to like go watch it. For once, spoilers are good and helpful. <laughs> so I, fe- I feel like we started with Kim Samsung in 2005, and then you, you know, we got Oh My Venus. What did you say that was 2017? 15. 2015, um, where the heroine is still cast as like a conventionally shaped actress who only wears a fat suit for a very small portion of the drama. And then in 2019, an unconventionally shaped heroine gets to have the entire journey. And so I'm not saying that these problematic ways of portraying women don't exist. They're still rampant and fat shaming is still rampant. But I am happy that we got we're getting some type of like evolution here in in the kind of portrayals that are available to us. Yeah, drama land has an arc. (laughs) Right. And I think this is one of those situations where the art is trying to lead the conversation. Because, you know, we talk about whether life imitates art or um, art imitates life. And dramas and media depictions and uh, books and all of these things do have an impact on the way society thinks. So that's partly why it's so important about how dramas depict things. Because it, it will have a social impact. And and with this, we've, you know, to be able to begin a conversation in 2005 and in 2019, one drama, we've arrived. And maybe, you know, that will keep on going. Yeah, as pieces, drama and has an arc. And that's it's actually really heartening to see that it does take time. These things aren't going to be overnight, but they are happening. And as we mentioned, and as you brought up during the um, our conversation, about racism in part one, like every drama is individual. And so each representation and each piece of art does have to be taken on its own. But it's like, how many representations do you have available to you? And are they diverse? And are they nuanced? And are they complex? Or do you just have one? And it's terrible, you know, and all that matters. True. I wanted to talk about briefly uh, about my idea is Gangnam Beauty. That drama is... Um, a hodgepodge of themes, some of which I loved, some of which I'm conflicted about. But there is an element of, it's not exactly fat shaming. It's more like how society treats you when you're fat and how your life improves when you've lost weight and kind of the consequences of trying to deliberately keep your weight low when your body is falling sick trying to keep your weight a certain number. And you're refusing to acknowledge that it's a challenge for your body, that that's maybe not your normal weight, but you're forcing it to stay that way. So this is shown in two different uh, struggles. The first is, of course, Im Soo Hyung's, the the younger version of her, like in in her character's childhood, she used to be pretty, um, she used to be overweight. The thing is that she's quote unquote supposed to have a very ugly face. And now I have a lot of issues with the way um, her face is not really shown 
but when she was a when she was an overweight child her face is shown as if the face of that fat child is already ugly enough so we don't need to use our imagination but once that child having been taunted for being fat and ugly by her peers and by adults and all of that stuff finally starts running and she loses weight and she thinks well now i've lost weight i have a skinny body now i'll be accepted then she's still taunted for her ugly face and at this point we're not shown her face as if now as a skinny kid we have to use our imagination how ugly can a skinny kid be to still not be accepted by society i have some issues with that depiction if they were not going to show the child's face as a skinny girl they shouldn't have shown the overweight child's face either i just ha- i found it problematic that they found it okay to show the overweight child's face as if that child's face was ugly enough the arc of that character is that im soo young's younger counterpart she was overweight taunted and she lost weight thinking that having lost weight now society will accept me but they didn't because her face was still not satisfactorily pretty apparently it was so ugly that she was constantly mocked so that's one aspect the other aspect is of her rival character when she's grown up played by uh, jo booty so there's this really pretty girl called hyun suna who's been sort of naturally pretty all her life and one of the repeated um lines that like she keeps having these interactions where people are like well you know you're you're a natural beauty you never had to work on your beauty and to maintain the myth of that that she never has to work on being a natural beauty she pretends that she can eat as much as she likes but never gains weight it's a repeated thing because there is a senior who is also mocked for her weight now she's perfectly comfortable with her body she has her own romantic arc and then dumps a guy because he's an ass I love it. I love I love all the characters in this drama so much. I can talk about it for hours. But in a situation in a sort of like a college uh, group situation where the senior is being mocked by her peers and a, a one of her classmates tells her that well you have such a pretty face if you only lost weight which is something come on who hasn't you've heard this before such a pretty face if you only lost weight or if only you were fairer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and this girl and and this senior understandably lashes back she's like well it's my face it's my body why are you so bothered about what my weight is and the thing is the conversation shifts to soa who who the instead of being supportive of a fellow female um or or just being just human she she acts like well you know i can eat whatever i want and i never gain weight and which completely throws the entire conversation into this awkward situation because here is this woman who struggles to lower her weight struggles to lose it and here is this girl pretending k you know and the thing is we the the clincher is that we find out later on how hard she works not to gain weight as soon as she eats something she goes to the bathroom and pukes it out she's constantly taking diet pills she's actually hurting her body to stay a certain weight she never admits the struggle and instead resents im so young's character for having had work done on her face because in um soa's mind im soyeon's character mire is the one who's unnatural for having had plastic surgery to look beautiful but her own constant repressing of her own hunger constantly hurting her own body constantly making herself puke to not make sure that you don't gain weight that's hurting your own body but she doesn't find anything unnatural about her about that so i i found that the depictions of all of that really interesting So I just wanted to bring that up. I I liked that that conversation happened. 
I think it's really interesting that you mention the whole puking part because eating disorders have, I think, it's one of those things that have yet to be properly explored in K-drama. But also, I think if we sort of step out of K-drama for a second and go to real life in KN, which is that eating disorders are like, they're, they're very dangerous and also almost ubiquitous uh, among not just young celebrities, but even like older ones. The example that comes to mind like immediately is, you know, Soinguk when he first appeared on the scene and he was told that, you know, he was too heavy. And can I can I just point out that he was av- he was like completely normal. I mean, he wasn't a stick, but he was basically a, a normal, normal figured person. Yeah. yeah. And they told him that, you know, your visual's not right and you need to lose weight. So that sent him into a, a pretty much a tailspin of like eating disorders, and by the time he'd lost the weight, he damaged his vocal cords from all the vomiting that he was doing. So can I just say the quote that this article that you linked has from him? Yeah, yeah. He says they said that although I'd lost weight, my singing had worsened. I presume it because I damaged my vocal cords due to all the vomiting. Like that is heartbreaking. That is just... It really is. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to contextualize and uh, recognize that those beauty standards are, first, they're impossible. And two, to keep perpetuating it keeps perpetuating the toxicity of it as well. If you can't allow normal body shapes and normal faces uh, and normal noses and normal skin colors to be on a screen or at least to be main characters, that's not a very heartening ideal for people who want to go into entertainment. It's like if you want to be a lead, if you want to have the highest status that you can attain, you have no choice but to follow these paths. I haven't watched um, Maidi, but it sounds like that does a good job of showing that discussion um, and I think that also we had Birth of a Beauty in 2014-15 which wasn't so much the weight issue although there was a weight element but the issue was just looks the general you know face body everything the whole package and this again was Hajisuk who uh, transformed into Han Yesel. But they also showed that changing your body and changing your face didn't change the mind that was living through these experiences. Like the psychological element to handling those beauty standards doesn't go away even if you're beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And that I thought was a really salient point in the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I think I just want to bring in variety for a minute because. I've watched a lot of Hello Counselor, which is Annyeonghaseyo in Korean. And it's basically, I think it had like a nine year long season and it just ended its first season. And I don't know when they're going to come back. But it's basically, yeah, (laughs) it's basically an advice show where people bring their whatever concern they're struggling with. They talk about it on stage. So they have a guest and then they have people who know that guest who can kind of talk about what they're dealing with. The person who brings the concern is often complaining about or is often worried about a particular person. So this person comes on stage and the person who they are worried about, for example, a person whose hobby has gotten so out of control that they're like $10,000 in debt and they're basically neglecting all of their personal obligations, for example. Um, And then some family members who can kind of like give some extra context and friends So anyway, a lot of these issues often have to do with body image or weight or something related to that. 
But one of the hosts, they have four hosts, MCs, and one of them is Iyengja, who is such a girl crush, honestly. She's amazing. Um, she's like tall and strong and like extremely witty, hilarious. She is like the wisest TV personality that I've ever seen. She always gives the best advice. When people are being a-holes, she tells them off in very strong words. Like, she's not afraid of giving people truth bombs. Like, this woman is so amazing. Um, and, like, I think her technical job is as a comedian. But she is heavier than, you know, so-called ideal weight for an entertainer. And her weight is consistently brought up on the show. And I've seen her so many times, like, a topic will come up that is related to to wait it just comes up as an issue or like it comes up with one of the guests and she like makes the joke about herself before anyone else has a chance to make the joke about her I mean I don't know if that's what she's doing but it feels like that because so often anytime that topic comes up suddenly she becomes the butt of a joke and she laughs along she never seems hurt or offended by it even if she does get offended it's like in a playful way where she's like in on the joke she's like yeah like don't do that like it's this really upsetting dynamic where even though there are so many amazing things about her, it's like, here's this one flaw, I guess, like in quotes that she can never escape from. Nobody lets her not talk about it. And because she's also very tall and very strong, whenever like a strong man comes on the show, they make her like arm wrestle him or like pick him up. But it's like in a way that's admiring her, but also kind of mocking her. Yeah. And also kind of downplaying or dismissing her femininity as though because she's displaying characteristics that are usually associated mostly with men, she's not as much of a woman. Sometimes like the other male hosts will jokingly call her young or, you know, like it's really uncomfortable. And she's actually publicly spoken out about this issue, too. So, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, except that that she shouldn't have to live like that. She shouldn't have to live like that. Yeah, basically the same time you can also understand why she would go in for that joke first because it allows her to take control of the joke oh, rather than letting people laugh at her yes she can make that you know, just controlling that narrative i think every heavy child learns this at a very young age that if you don't make that joke first someone else is going to and then you become the butt of it so either you can be the executor you execute the joke and it goes how you decide it goes or you let other people make fun of you and that sort of that let that puts you at the bottom of of someone else's boot. To clarify, I wasn't criticizing her no, no, for of doing course that. You weren't, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm upset on her behalf that she is put in the kind of position where like she needs to do that in order to not be, you know, victimized even further. Can I just say before we move on to the next topic, which is equally upsetting? Yeah. I just love her so much. Like she everything everything she does. She is the best part of that show. So I just root for her career so much. That's all I wanted to say. Okay. And the next topic that we really wanted to talk about, and we've mentioned this a few times when we watched shows where this came up, ableism. So let's jump into this. I know we mentioned this when we discussed Where Stars Land, also known as Fox Bride Star on the podcast. It also came up when we reviewed um, The Secret Life of My Secretary. And we had a listener, or I don't know if this person is a listener actually, but Eugene Young on Twitter said that she noticed it in the drama Life, which upsettingly is actually from the same production team between Forest of Secrets, which makes me sad because she said that in that 
in that drama, there was a character who was paraplegic and it basically dropped him out of the running for being a romantic interest. So that's another example. Do you all have any examples that you'd like to bring up? Well, Fox Bright Star is like the biggest offender because I actually watched that entire drama. And so, so it's did I. Into my head. Sorry, it makes me want to yell every time. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I oh, oh my God. I think we all watched that entire drama, right? Why? I, I kept what? watching it to the end. Hoping... Waiting for it to get better. Exactly. Even though you guys had told me beforehand that it didn't. But I don't know. <laughs> Just for context, um, if you haven't seen this drama, don't watch it. Uh, <laughs> but basically, the male lead played by Lee Ji-hoon, he, I think he was in a car accident or he had some... Accident, yeah. I think it was an accident, yeah. And yeah. he was beaten up. Yeah, so he was paraplegic. And like, at the beginning of the drama, he has this like magical... Bionic Oh, isn't it his arms limbs. too? One arm, one leg. So that, those bionic limbs allow him to basically walk around and behave as though he is able-bodied. And as the drama progresses, something goes wrong with that technology and he begins to get sick. But he really struggles because he doesn't want to go back to being physically, like, identifiably disabled. So he keeps wearing it, even though it's making him sick and he might die. And then eventually, and at the same time, he's falling in love with uh, Chesubin. And as he gets sicker, he decides that, like, he's not good enough for her because his body doesn't give her a chance to really tell him he's wrong. Eventually, he has to return to a wheelchair, and the drama decides that in order to deal with his health issues or whatever is going on with him, he has to disappear from her life and from the life of everyone who knows him. And then he comes back two years later, looking like he did in the beginning, so apparently his bionic limbs work again. And now, apparently, he's deserving of having we actually a romantic relationship. Because we didn't see his face. Mm. But they don't show us his face. So yeah. literally, the only thing that matters about him returning in that moment is that his arms and legs work. Yeah, and he's standing on his own feet, so... Yeah, more than his emotions, mm. or like how he looks when he sees her, or anything. Like, oh my god, how ableist can you be? I think what's most distressing and disturbing about the drama is... Well, firstly, it was on the verge of doing something really important. Yeah. And then it didn't. And then... And also, like, the way his character immolates himself in self-hate. And Mm -hmm. you're like, you could have shown him having difficulty with his disabilities. Fine. You could have shown him having trouble accepting that. Fine. But you had to, at the point where they could have been like, but then this happened and then gone in that not ableist way. At that point, they were just like, you know what? You you can't be a hero. There's, it's just, <laughs> I get annoyed, <laughs> bang my desk and then the camera goes. What it said about what kind of person can be a hero I mean, it's similar to life, right? Like, if you're in a wheelchair, you're not allowed to be a hero. If you have any physical disability, you're not allowed to be a hero. And that, in some ways, that poisons the other dramas, the ones that uh, show you mental illness. And because we actually have quite a good stable of uh, dramas about mental illness that deal with it really well. But I feel that's poisoned by the f- the fact that dramas refuse to give the same treatment to physical disability. And there's also something odd that when you have a drama showing physical disability, if, for instance, Ijehun's character, when he's wearing his prosthetic, um, uh, sorry, bionic limbs, 
he's not just able body he's overpowered he can literally mm. lift cars and stuff i don't know super powered which is how he gets found out more or less and this kind of reminds me a bit of a segue away from um, dramas uh, of this book that i used to really love i still love it um, graceling by christine kishore and you had a character there po who was this really active you know intelligent character da 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 an accident happens he loses his sight and uh, by the end of the book he doesn't get his sight back but he has uh, developed his other senses so much that they compensate don't, don't just compensate they overcompensate and now he almost has magical powers he doesn't need his sight when christine kishore wrote that and we read it neither me the reader nor she the author found this problematic later on she was contacted by um, people who explained what ableism was to her and she tried to correct it in the next book which i think was um that where he appears and i think that one was um in bitter blue where she does show that it not having sight is a problem uh, for him he's not it's not completely compensated by magical ableism but that's exactly the thing it's like dramas can't just show a disabled character facing actual difficulties and everyday difficulties not just like for the one time that they tried to show Uh, a difficulty with uh, again what's his name ejehon ejehon's character <laughs> ejehon's character is when he is in his wheelchair and he finally is brave enough to go out in public in his wheelchair kind of trying to contemplate life as it would be if oh, he was on his wheelchair I remember the scene and it the horrible way they show he flips over in a pier nobody helps him and he can't reach his phone because he's fallen down a few steps and it's just for 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 is i cannot imagine a situation when there is a where there's a peer full of people and nobody would help a, a wheelchair person in that that situation i cannot imagine such a situation happening it's it's an instinctive human urge to run and help it's one of the things people complain about that just because i i have a disability doesn't mean you need to baby me i i've heard this repeatedly being told to us that is how human mind works they overcompensate in how much you know we assume you need help you must need help you must be which is why mm-hmm. we we don't think they can handle responsibilities which is why they're not hired for certain jobs and the way the short decides to show us that society will not accept him in a wheelchair is by him literally flipping over and not being able to take a call and nobody helping him and that's it that's the end of his experiment with yeah. you know an outing yeah yeah like and and the other aspect of that is that He was finally brave enough to show himself to her. Yeah. Like they were supposed to meet that day. Absolutely. And he showed up in his wheelchair because he was like, "Yes, I'm going to show her who I really am." And then like the drama chooses to humiliate him in such a horrible way. And she never Like that's what it felt like. Yeah, and she doesn't come and it's like a rejection from the writer, you know, and for the producer they're like, "No, you can't have this because of the kind of body that you have." And it felt like a slap in the face, honestly. Pretty much. The whole drama just felt like a slap mm. in the face. And like I yeah, I have too many feelings about this. I'm done. <laughs> it was horrible. It was really like it wasn't simply badly done. It was deliberately hurtful. Like it it yeah. did more than just sort of not solve its problem. It it kind it attacked you, right? Yeah. It yeah. didn't just exist as it was. It actually went out and attacked the entire idea of like you know it attacked disability i'm i'm ready to talk again i got too emotional before <laughs> sorry 
I understand. Yeah, so I I mean, as someone with a disability myself, like I think I had more of a an even more upset reaction to this. And I think what's at the heart of this is this repeated reinforcement of the idea that like and it relates also to what we were talking about before. Like if your body doesn't fit into this particular standard of what society sees as the ideal, not only do you not deserve a job and romantic love and a happy family life, like you don't even get to be treated like a full human being. You don't inhabit the same humanness that someone who is able-bodied does. And that's not something that's only represented in media, but it's like ingrained into the institutions of our governments and our societies. And that's why it's so hurtful to see it in media, because it reminds you of the really unpleasant realities that you deal with every day. Um, much in the same way that like unexpectedly coming across racism in a TV show does. So yeah. do y'all have anything else to add? The only positive, I, and it's not even really disability, but again, I'll go back to the high school thing of Savi. Um, you guys remember that he was a really good ice hockey player, but then he had an accident and he couldn't play anymore. And so mm-hmm. his entire career was kind of just done for. And um I forget the actress's name, but basically she, um, like their relationship developed while he recovered and he figured out another way of making a living. It's like he had to deal with a life where he was not fully able-bodied anymore. Like he was not as physically fit as before. He couldn't continue with his sport. So this was life after he had lost his ability to play. So I, I, I like that that was shown. Yeah. And I think uh, we talked about this right after we watched The Secret Life of My Secretary, but even though the male lead's disability in that drama is not, it's invisible in a lot of ways, right? Like you can't see it on him. He still looks, you know, like a typical male lead, but it really affects his life in very significant ways. Yeah. And the drama doesn't cop out at the end and and magically take that away. Like he might have a few moments here and there where he's able to you know see people's faces yeah but he never goes back to how he was before he had his accident. no he remains disabled That's yeah true. and like that was great and i and i really appreciated it but what i appreciated even more was the drama's depiction of the heroine's older brother who is um, blind he's been blind since childhood mm. and there's an explicit the drama actually deals with his disability and with the hero's disability in the sense that There's a scene where um, you see a flashback to their childhood where his mom tells him basically like that he's not less valuable because he can't see and he's like as fully valuable as anybody else. And he ends up saying that same thing to the male lead much later as they're adults at at a certain point. And I I know it sounds kind of obvious and and maybe like trite, but it was so moving. Like I found it so moving. I definitely cried at that point. No, and I like that it was echoed later on by the heroine to the hero. That's right. And mm-hmm. the, you saw in like their home and the way they lived and the in the behavior of the heroine, how having him as her brother kind of shapes her life. Yeah. Not in a negative way, just in a different way. Yeah. And how she like fully accepts him and lives with him and accepts him for the way he is and how he like actually adds a lot to her life. He's mm-hmm. not like, you know, a burden no, absolutely. He, he's a full member of her family. He helps out when he can. He goes and gives massages to earn some money. It's not like he's ever shown 
as he bosses as, her around. He bosses her around all the time. Yeah, he's her oppa. He's her oppa properly. Um, so I really like that. But in contrast to um, a Secret Life of My Secretary, because we are talking about Dominic's inability to recognize faces, another drama where a, a, a character can't recognize faces is uh, Beauty Inside, which is a drama that there are aspects of it that I really enjoyed that a lot of people didn't, but. Even Key's character um, can't recognize faces after a certain um, accident happens, which is how the, the conceit of the drama goes forward. To be with his, his, the woman he falls in love with, he goes through an extremely dangerous procedure where the survival rate is like 5% or less. And he goes through it. And, and here's the weird thing. It's, one thing is that he goes through it because he keeps saying he really wants to see her I don't know, see her. And the other thing is that his original accident had sort of happened because of Soh character. And because she couldn't forgive herself, he decides, well, if I get better, she'll accept me. So he goes through this extremely dangerous procedure. So like where he, like 95% chance of him dying, he goes through that so that she accepts him back and he doesn't discuss this with her at all. The thrust of the story seems to be that they cannot be together so long as he has this disability. So basically the end message is exactly the same as Fox Bright Star. You're not actually asking the love interest if she can deal with his disability. You're literally not giving her any time or space. The moment she's like, I need some, some time to decide, he runs off to get this extremely dangerous surgery. In contrast with Secret Life of My Secretary, where he lives with the disability and they both find ways to live with it. And and prize the few moments when he can see her face, like every you know few years or so. Yeah, that reminds me of that line in "I'm Not a Robot." You know when the doctor says to you singer about learning to see your disability or your illness as a friend, mm-hmm. and like I think we talked about this at the time, but "I'm Not a Robot" actually did that really well. K dramas have this need as in they feel a need to keep their heroes not often heroines as it's heroes to keep their heroes viable by keeping them physically like to the eye they have to be um to fulfill that ideal of physical masculinity exactly and and of, of what a hero should look like but even I mean within that, if if I, I don't want to take away from what the the dramas have done, for example, in I'm Not a Robot, Kill Me, Heal Me, It's Okay, It's Love, in all of those uh, shows, the heroes and in Kill Me, Heal Me, the hero and the heroine, they went through some very like serious trauma and illness and. Like for example, in It's Okay, It's Love, Joan Sung uh, is schizophrenic. And that stays with him. He doesn't yeah. get cured. Yeah. In Kill Me, Heal Me, Jisung, who has a dissociative identity disorder, doesn't get cured. They learn to manage their illnesses. In I'm Not a Robot, there's a period where Jisung uh, believes he's cured, but then he realizes, like, he finds out he's not. But their arc is that they learn to manage not just the illness but their emotions about the illness and their emotions about the relationships that they have it is like it it does deal with it really well but i do wish we'd get the same for physical disability also absolutely agreed oh <laughs> one one more thing i want to add i'm literally like i have just started this show 
that's it and you guys are ahead of me but um it's okay to not be okay and they haven't said this explicitly but ojung says character who is uh kim soyeon's hyung he has what i believe is autism and yeah he says it later that he's on the spectrum oh okay so but, yeah, i'm on episode two but the way they've treated him as a character and the way that they've portrayed how he experiences the world is just so well done and i'm so happy with it yes that's just so heartening to see i hesitate to say this because i'm only on episode seven but so far I think the way that they have handled mental illness in this show is... Chef's kiss. Yeah, it may be the best that I've seen so far. But I guess we'll find out as many things crashed and burned in the second half. <laughs> so We should save this for the yak, right? Yeah, yeah, we should. We have stuff to say in the yak. Absolutely. We'll yeah. pick it up then. Okay, so I think that is a good point for us to segue into some of these broader questions that we've been thinking about on representation. Um, a lot of this stuff we've kind of talked about, you know, loving a show, but also finding a lot of problems with it. And um, what, what our line is, for example, about what crosses the line into being unacceptable. And I guess my question is, what makes a drama become too problematic to watch? And how can we address the issue of giving voice to the way in which drama causes us harm versus refusing to even give space to a show? So like, when is it valuable to continue discussing a show and sort of exploring its nuances? And when should you just be like, this doesn't even deserve to be mentioned? Like it should be, I hesitate to use the word boycotted, but like people use that language when they're talking about TV shows sometimes, right? So like, yeah. are, are, are some tropes forgivable? Are there others that are unforgivable? Are there absolutes? What do y'all think? I think at the end of the day, it, it, stop watching the drama that crosses a line for you and maybe start a discussion about what it is that crossed the line. That That's about as far as I'm willing to go. Uh, if a drama is so problematic that it hurts a lot of people, then yes, maybe it should stop airing. However, I'm, I'm not going to call for that. I, I don't like uh, calling to cancel an ongoing and, and airing show, especially when you all you've seen is the first couple of episodes. Um, point is that you should stop watching it when it crosses the line for you. It doesn't matter what other people, if, if the other people try to convince you that it's not really the show's intention, you've missed the point, understand the context of the culture, they, they believe such and such, therefore, you know, you cannot possibly feel offended. None of that is valid. If it crosses the line for you, that that is completely valid. And you have the right to express that opinion. And you will, the, the moment you express that, you will find that there will be other people who have felt that as well. And your expressing that opinion helps them verbalize what they felt. And that allows uh, an open discussion to happen. So that discussion is very important. Yeah. I think we can't police what other people watch and we can't tell other viewers you are or are not allowed to watch this or you should, you know, whatever. But I think when a drama is that problematic, like, for example, I feel Backstreet Rookie is, we do need to uh, call it out to the production teams in whatever way we can contact them or like bring this conversation into the open. We need to do that. I don't think it's okay to sit quietly and 
just be like, oh, you know, the the whole the argument of if you don't like it, don't watch it. I find quite spurious in in some uh, situations because sometimes we're not talking about personal preferences. We're talking about important social values, and we're talking about you know active harm. We're talking about things that can hurt people in real life situations, yeah. and in those moments. I feel like I would be remiss if I were not to take a stand on that, even if I'm not going to say to people, stop watching it, because I, I don't believe I can. I have the right to police viewers on what they watch. Yeah. But I do think it's really important to, you know, explain to people what's so dangerous about these things. And if they choose to carry on uh, watching whatever it is afterwards that's you know that's between them and, and the show but we do need to have these conversations and we do need to approach the conversations with intellectual integrity and honesty and not be dogmatic about our attachment uh, to a show part of the problem that we've been having in the conversation for example about Backstreet Rookie is that hordes descend of people who will not hear a word against Oppa or, or Onni or whoever it is. And that's not helpful. That's not how, um, like, sometimes we need to approach our media critically. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just want to have your, you know, um, happy meal or what do you call it, um, your fast food and your midnight snack. You, you need to, sometimes you want it to be uncritical. But sometimes there are points that something becomes too important to just let it go. Yeah. And I think to kind of add on to that, as far as in which situation do you just say, I don't like this, I'm just going to step away from this, I'm not going to watch it, versus actually like making your voice heard and putting your voice out there. I think it probably depends on how you interact with the fandom that you're in. If you're not a person who really feels comfortable engaging in a community space, I think it's totally understandable not wanting to make this your first foray into fan discussion, being like, hey, this show is really racist. I mean, I could totally understand that. But I think if you're a person who is a very active member of a fandom, and I think like speaking from our own position here at Dramas Over Flowers, like we have this tiny little platform that we call our own. We don't really have anyone looking over our shoulders and stopping us from saying the things that we want to say, which is one of the reasons that we love this podcast so much, at least, you know, I do. And we all felt that it was really important to talk about this because it's not enough to just give something a side eye and walk away when you have a platform where it will be very noticeable if you decide to be silent on a particular topic. Yeah. And we never want to make that kind of point with our silence. Because that silence is pretty loud when it happens. Yeah. And it indicates approval, honestly, mm -hmm. in a lot of senses. Yeah. There's so many aspects to the experience of being a viewer, which is, you know, one part of it, the basic fundamental part of it is you have watched the show. But that has other like attached parts to it one of which is being engaged in the fandom so even if a show you know exists and continues to exist and you can't stop it from existing or doing that thing you still want to have a space where other voices who have authority in some way are pointing it out and not uh, skating over it with silence because as you both said the silence is telling you something and it's a message that we're all getting yeah yeah. And to kind of put it, and I mean, we, we were sort of talking about it up till now from a fandom perspective, but to put it in a broader societal perspective, which I think 
um, it applies to any kind of entertainment media, right? Yeah. Not just specifically Korean mm-hmm. dramas. And this is something that I think a lot of Americans have been wrestling with recently as regards to how we have valorized the police in our shows. And what this makes me think about a lot is how what we see on screen is reflected back onto society and how it is impacted by and also impacts it within society, those who have power and those who do not have power. The people who are in positions that are seen as heroic and who gets victimized by those so-called heroes. And I'm going to link a piece that basically interviews a whole bunch of people who have worked on police dramas anonymously, like producers, writers, people who are like kind of behind the scenes, because they basically all said, we kind of knew it was wrong, but we did it anyway, because this is what viewers will accept from the genre. This is what production companies want to see in a genre. They don't want to see, you know, black people being victims of crime. They don't want to see police officers being terrible. Police officers are the heroes. So, you know, like it kind of gives you a glimpse into this systemic Um, way in which narrative tropes are weaponized against certain groups of people. And so that's why I think it's really important to have these discussions. And maybe in the particular case of K-dramas, the discussions that are really going to change things will come from inside Korea. And I think some of those discussions are happening, even if they're not like extremely prominent. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also have those discussions. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of, we can't ignore that there's an international aspect to Korean drama at this point that is deliberately being participated in by the production companies themselves and the TV channels. And that kind of segues into my next point, which is what is is the responsibility (laughs) of those people who are involved in creating these productions Um, apart from simply not doing these things in the first place. But like, what if, for example, an actor who is playing a character in this ends up doing something really horrible or something that crosses the line or, Uh, you know, becomes a controversy, but then like, maybe they're not necessarily the person who made that choice. Maybe they didn't know when they signed up for the drama that their character would be playing out that particular trope. Do we hold them accountable? Do we, I know we've kind of joked in the past of like, I saw somebody in this particular drama, like I don't want to see them again, like with actors. We were being facetious usually. Yeah, we're being facetious. We understand that contracts are a thing and that (laughs) once you start filming, you really don't have any control over how the PDN writer, like where they take the story. You're contractually bound to film the whole thing and be part of the promotions. And whether you want to or not, your approval will be tied into the whole thing. So to expect actors to speak up against an airing drama because there is backlash is probably not, they usually contractually bound not to say anything that would harm the, you know, yeah. the viewership of the mm-hmm. drama. So that's, that's not an expectation we should have. The only people who should be held accountable um, are the production companies. However, if an actor over and over again takes up roles that depicts a certain kind of character, well, then, then I would hold yeah. them accountable. Yeah, because then it's a trend. It's not an accident. No, they're doing it deliberately. Like mm-hmm. I, I have had, uh, this is not exactly a problematic thing, but I've had my little rant about Sanghoon takes up a lot of similar characters in very hero worshipping type role like where he's the only saintly person in the entire drama type and the heroines are all just dumb heads and even then there's the small caveat of like maybe he's just being typecast and those are the only people that hire him yeah maybe so you know you never you never really know the whole story behind the scenes saya 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with Burma. It has to be top down because there's only like, OK, ideally, we want to say, oh, if an actor finds some something problematic, then they should just drop the script and walk away. But I mean, real life doesn't work that way because contractual obligations and, you know, income and jo- and they just they don't have the kind of power that perhaps fan fans might attribute Assume. to them yeah yeah exactly the people whose minds you really want to change are executives are like you know the people up there yeah yeah the writers the pds who yeah. Yeah, decide on which scripts to choose the thing with writing is that you can separate what's problematic in writing from what's problematic in how uh, it's then depicted Mm. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases, they are tied, but sometimes they can be separated. So yeah, writers also. Yeah. I, and I would also point out that as Refresh Demon told us, the character of like director is king is really strong in mm. Korea. Um, and he was talking particularly about the film industry, but I think it's also true about the TV industry and in that the director is really where the buck stops on a set. You know, like they pretty much have authority over what happens. So even though... We talk a lot about like women writers and how amazing it is that these stories are being told by women. The majority of directors of K-dramas uh, are also men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and they are in a position of authority above the writers, unless the writer is such a huge star or has such a big presence that the writer basically is, you know, running the show like Kim and Sook. But then she chooses to be misogynistic anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that's a side point. Um, but yeah, so that power structure exists and so i i agree with you both that it makes sense to hold the person accountable who is kind of at the top and making those decisions you know the moment we call kimians of misogynistic it it begs uh, uh, like a few moments of explanation because she doesn't do any blatantly misogynistic thing it's very layered and i don't think we have the time to go into that no An episode for another day i yeah. honestly want to do a kimians <laughs> special at some point and i i think yeah, so do I actually. Yeah. I, think, I think she deserves one. <laughs> <Having given Yes. laughs> Agreed. Yeah, so I mean, we have a lot of love, as you can tell, for K-dramas. Like we, we have some complaints, but like our criticism comes from a place of love because K-dramas have given us so much in so many ways. Yeah. And our, our hearts are, are full. We have spent a lot of hours <laughs> watching these shows. We've devoted also our hard drives. Many hours of our hard drives to this show, um, and I I think if you truly love something, you will spend a lot of time thinking about it and discussing it and kind of deconstructing it. That's just kind of the nature of love, right? So I think this is just part of the package. Um, I don't believe in being an uncritical fan or someone who just loves blindly. Because I think when we consume these pieces of art, it it kind of, hmm, where am well, I going? Look, when you have a meal or, or when you're about to eat something, you check the ingredients. You look at what you're putting in, inside your body. We do the same thing when it comes to media. We, we have to look at what we're putting inside our minds. And we have to look at the effect that that will then have on us. It's like you said earlier, sometimes you just want junk food and it's fine to enjoy junk food. But like junk food is not the majority of our diet and... It's important to be conscious and be responsible about the media we consume for all the reasons that we talked about, you know, why it matters, how it impacts our life, how it interacts with with real life. And I think, as we have talked about before, 
The Korean drama industry recognizes its international audience, is proud of it, profits from it, references talks it, talks about it. Yeah. So I think that they should also listen to us because we are now, I mean, maybe not 10 years ago, we weren't part of their intended audience, but we are actually part of the intended audience in a way that, you know, I, I've seen people dismiss criticism of Korean dramas as like, oh, this is made for a domestic audience. You just don't get it. But you can't have your cake and eat it too, you know? So I think it's completely valid for international audiences to have say in what they're watching and to be part of the conversation. Agreed that they should be part of the conversation and have a say in what they're watching and definitely have our feedback matter to the production houses. But I also understand that um, when we say that uh, their international audience is like a large, uh, like a pretty substantial part of their viewership. The Western audience isn't actually so much. It's mostly East Asian, other East Asian countries that make up their larger international um, audience. So there is a lot of cultural similarities in a lot of East Asian countries where, well, the criticisms won't always come from there. And, And the thing is, I'm a bit conflicted. I don't know how much Korean drama should change because international audiences want them to change. I Because I'm, I'm always afraid that if our voices start mattering too much, then Korean dramas will stop being Korean dramas because they are so amazing because their primary audience is Korean. And I'm always afraid that if our voice becomes too, if they start pandering to us, they might lose that essence that we love so much. I want them to change because domestically the change is happening. It's being called for. Like with Backstreet Rookie, they have had so many complaints domestically. It's it's being brought up by its domestic audience. All of the changes that we want, they are being brought about by the urging of their domestic audience. It's not like their domestic audience is passive and we are the wise people who are being able to spot the problems. Their domestic audience is absolutely spotting it. I definitely wasn't trying to say that. No, 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 I I know, I know. I'm just just (laughs) saying that... Our discussion matters because we sh- we should be talking. This is this is media we consume. We have a voice in criticizing it because it's media we consume, and we are paying subscriptions so that we can watch it. They are making money off us, so no matter how tiny a piece we are of the pie, our voice matters. But if change is to come, all I'm saying is most likely to come domestically, and I want it to come domestically. I agree. When we talk about whether we want dramas to change to accommodate our perceptions or ideas of how that drama should be i think like for example when i i can't speak for everyone but when when i am making a criticism of a drama for example it's not that i necessarily want the drama to change what i want is i want the drama to apply the same level of rigor in its storytelling in its research in its production in just creating a high quality product that it does in you know many other ways because in some aspects they fail at applying that rigor and and i think all of nearly all of the issues that we've spoken about in these last couple of episodes would go back to a, a lack of applying that level of rigor i think Beauty standards might be the one that doesn't this doesn't quite apply to because that's like a slightly different area. But for example, in things like um, you know stereotypical portrayals of different types of um, people groups, 
if you had done a, a sufficient amount of research um, and if you had had the sufficient interest in telling that story fully rather than taking the shortcut that a stereotype provides, then you avoid these problems. So we're not saying that we are requiring a, a wholesale shift in how dramas are made. What we're saying is there's some aspects a drama can do better and in this drama or that drama it has failed to apply that level of rigor to overuse the word yeah and i think something that i kind of realized at the back of my mind but something that's become really clear um as we've recorded both of these episodes in one morning it's now the afternoon but <laughs> i have been <laughs> midnight yeah, yeah it's night for y'all <laughs> I think one of the things that I that have really come home to me is how a there are a lot of a lot more of these representations of sort of difference than I had initially thought or that I had experienced when I first became a K-drama fan mm-hmm. and b that you can kind of see an evolution in representation that has been happening I think over the last like 10-15 years and that is a totally uh, internal domestic movement because the international fandom has only really sort of come to the notice of the industry in pretty recent years in a real way. And so I think that the function of this type of conversation is not only that you're trying to influence the industry. I don't really think that, as you said, Borma, like we're not really going to be able to change them and nor should we. But it's sort of you're contextualizing your fandom experience, not only among other people and among like diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences like we're a very international fandom we live all over the world but also perhaps contextualizing dramas for people who have not spent 11 years in this fandom the way I have or you know however many years each of us have spent so that it's I think important for people to understand that even though whenever we come into this uh, media that is not of our own sort of background and the culture that we grew up in, that it's not one of those media, I think for many of us in the English speaking K-drama fandom that like we've just been absorbing our whole lives in the way that we have with some other types of media. But there's still a history to that media. There's still an evolution to that media. So I do, I find myself frustrated sometimes when people have a really shallow knowledge of K-dramas and they've seen like one and they're like, oh, well, wrist grabs. and But I mean, if you look at how things have changed, even in the aspect of like wrist grabs, you know, over the last, since Boys Over Flowers, how things like that have changed and how we've seen so how many nuances. subverted and kind of used yes. as a meta joke in more recent dramas. It's not gone away, but the awareness of the tropes has sort of infiltrated the, you know, industry itself. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, a reflection of a lot of the feminist movements that are happening in Korea and the conversations that people are having in Korea. And I think we should be careful not to essentialize any culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I do see a troubling level of essentialization sometimes. Anissa, well, what does essentialization mean? I don't know. Oh, sorry. It means like when you reduce something very large and complex into like one or two core concepts and say okay. like, this okay. is all it is. You know, so like you see these like really shallow descriptions of K-pop, not even from fans, from like Western media sometimes. They just describe it as like boy bands who dress like women, that kind of stuff, you know. So Mm -hmm. I got really wordy and I went off on a bunch of tangents. But my whole point is like it's really it's really um, valuable to have a sense of history and a sense of evolution, a sense of time passing, even when we talk about dramas. And like by the same token, um in not essentializing, also not exceptionalizing our own Western values 
because they are different to you know Korean values or generally Asian values or Eastern values, whichever way you want to put it. I think I've seen that in the fandom as well, and I I find that troubling. Uh, and I, I think especially as you know people who are kind of on the borderlines, you know, with one foot in the East and one foot in the West, it's easier to see those things. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. So I think that's a good place to end our conversation. Yeah. (laughs) That was a lot. We talked about a lot of things. Um, Please feel free to email us or contact us about anything that we just talked about, which I know is a ton. Seriously. And if you have forgotten, if you've missed out something and you think it was really important for us to mention, let us know. We'll see what we can do about it. Yeah. Um, Send us voice yeah. notes. Yeah, yeah, actually. Please do. It, it, it's, voice notes are amazing. Yeah. And then if it, if it fits the episode, we can include it in the episode. We would love to do that. We would love to have your voices um, in, in our yeah. discussions. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. If you feel comfortable, yeah. We just wanted to thank you all one last time for the amazing amount of. I mean, I, I was initially like, oh, we should ask people for feedback. And I wrote this little message. I was like, nobody's going to email us. And like, I think within like two days, we got like a bunch of emails and some message, like people mentioning us on Twitter. And like, we have like eight pages. Like, Anissa has put them all in like one Google Doc for us to reference as we discuss this stuff. And we have eight pages worth of, you know, comments and messages and just, just you know, notes that you, you guys have sent us. And it's just, we can't, I'm sure we missed out some stuff, even though we've tried to cover all the topics that you guys brought up. But it's just, it's, it was so amazing reading through them. Yeah. And we couldn't credit you all by name because we wouldn't be able to mention everyone. I didn't want to leave anyone out. But like, I'm going to put all the names of people who sent in their feedback, unless you want it to be anonymous, um, in the in the extended show notes that are going to be like <laughs> a large academic document. <laughs> you guys are all like co-credited for this episode because you guys helped yes. us put this stuff Absolutely. together. And you guys yes. give us cho- so many examples of dramas that we, we might have missed out on because it's despite having two encyclopedias um, next to me it's just impossible (laughs) for us to remember every instance or you know even most instances of certain uh, tropes playing out so thank you so much for being part of this podcast yeah all right uh so guys uh finally uh as always you can email us at dramasoverflowers at gmail.com you can uh tweet at us at dramasoverflow you can find us on instagram at uh, dramas over flowers underscore podcast and we are all three of us available on twitter i am available at fester faster you can find me at anisa khalifa underscore and you can find me at not now sire and you can find our blog with all the extended show notes and all the articles that we mentioned in this episode that we didn't have time to go into depth in those will all be at our blog at dramasoverflowers.net where we also um, each week post a weekend drama report, which gives you guys an idea of what we are watching since, you know, our yaks take a while to come out. (laughs) (laughs) So slightly more updated um, and timely reviews. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Good night. Bye. Bye. Okay. (laughs) Kalas. That's enough. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs)